A note to our listeners. We are recording this episode before Alexei Navalny's return from Germany back to Russia and before he released his latest investigation about the so-called Putin's palace. From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudalyubov. Russia's politics seems to be firmly under the Kremlin's control, and yet the past few years have seen a slew of successful protest movements arise in Russia. People have defended their electoral choice in Khabarovsk, managed to prevent an unwanted construction in Yekaterinburg, stopped at a huge landfill from being built in the Arkhangelsk region. And of course, Russia's most prominent opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, has just said he was going back to Moscow from Berlin. He had received medical treatment after the aftermath of his attempted poisoning. Something seems to be changing, and this year promises to be an important year in Russia's uh, politics. Joining me to discuss all this and more is Jana Nemtsova, co-founder of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom, named so after Boris Nemtsov, Jana's father, who was murdered almost six years ago in Moscow, essentially in front of the Kremlin, and uh, that murder is still to large extent a mystery. So we are going to discuss Russia's politics, Russia's change, and uh, Nemtsova's foundation and her plans. Jana Nemtsova, welcome to the Russia file. So what do you think? What is going to change this year in Russia? Do you really feel the change? Thank you very much for the invitation, and I'm happy to join you on your podcast Russian Files. First of all, I'm in Moscow right now, but I cannot feel any wind of change here. It's really freezing cold in Moscow. It's gonna be at 20 degrees below zero next week. We, as far as you know, as the foundation, we have a project and we are trying to bring together young regional leaders from across Russia. And last year, in the mid of December, we had a conference and a lot Lots of local politicians, activists from Russian regions joined us to discuss the prospects of Russian regional protests. First of all, we have to admit that we see that people are not happy with what's going on in Russia. And of course, we can witness, we can see some regional protests because of different reasons. But for now, we do not see any national movement against the current political regime. And in my mind, it's the most crucial thing. Unless we see this national movement, what we witnessed last year in Belarus. So unless As we see that, we cannot really expect any major change in Russia. And second, it's very important to highlight it that Russians are not really engaged into politics. They stay disengaged. They do not believe that they can change anything. They are not interested in what's going on. The system is very rigid and people are aware that there are potential risks if they decide to be largely engaged into politics. So it's like a situation when a lot of people are depoliticized. But at the same time, there are new people, new generations, and of course, they have absolutely nothing in common with the ruling regime in Russia. It's just what happened in Belarus. I visited Belarus for the first time in 2019, 
and I talked to young people and I understood that they had nothing in common with Lukashenko and his values. So we can expect change, but we have to wait. It's a very, very slow process, but we don't have to give up. That's the important part. So essentially, there is a social change. There is something that happens in society, but not in politics. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I think that in any country, we can see more or less the same things. First comes some social change, and then comes political change. But I think that this period before we see any political change might be really, really long. I mean, I want to quote my father, who said many, many times, it's a nice quote from him. He said, like, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So we've been running for 20 years now, and I think we'll have to run for another 10 years. It's extremely exhausting. And people who are actively involved in the politics, I think that many times they feel like sort of frustration because they invest so much passion, they invest so much effort into their cause, and nothing actually happens right now. And the things are really getting worse because the political system wants to survive and they resort to repressive practices. So you would rather see local movements like that as an indication of some social awakening, some change in people's psychology probably, but not politics, right? And again, people are probably, I don't know, but probably those movements are allowed to be successful by the authorities because they probably see this as a mechanism for giving people a certain feeling of success, but without allowing any real political change. Is that right? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, that you've just mentioned those protests which happened in Shias, in the region of Arhangelsk, Several years ago, it was quite successful, so the authorities had to stop the construction of this recycling facility, which, uh, of course, would have uh, damaged the ecosystem of this location. And there were substantial fears, so it was a successful protest. I think part of the reason, so the reason is that it was not political, but I mean, there were some clashes over there. So it was not easy to achieve your goal. And the authorities, they sent some uh, police officers there. They tried to do something about that, but they failed. It doesn't mean that they are really tolerant to non-political protest. They are not tolerant because they perfectly understand that a protest that starts like a non-political one can evolve into a political one. And it happens everywhere. Of course, there was another situation in the region of Khabarovsk last year. It was a purely political protest. Initially, they didn't try to dissolve this protest. They waited for a while and then they started to put additional pressure. The main challenge, the main threat for any autocratic regime is when people come together, when they create networks and communities, and when they take to the streets. 
And of course, they are very cautious about all these products. Only some of them are really successful. And as we see right now, the product in Khabarovsk has not been successful so far. Just to remind our listeners that Khabarovsk is a city in Russia's far east, and essentially the protest there happened last year over a decision by the Moscow authorities to open criminal investigation against the governor who was elected there in Khabarovsk in defiance of the Moscow-appointed, Moscow-supported candidate. The people of the Khabarovsk region chose a different figure, a local man who was known to them, and um, the Moscow authorities sort of decided to punish them. That's how it's seen from the region. And now that person, Sergei Furgal, is in custody, he's in Moscow, awaiting trial, as I understand. I think that it takes a lot of time and patience in order to be successful. I think it's still it's a region where the ruling part of Russia, meaning the united Russia, has extremely low level of support. So, and there are some other regions like that. So what I want to say, I think that the important also, the important thing about a regional protest is that there is an extreme inequality between Moscow. It's what we discussed during the conference. So we are talking about extreme inequality between Russian regions and Moscow. So this gap is widening all the time. Russia is a Moscow-centered country, wealth culture, politics, everything is here in Moscow. And regions, they are frustrated with the lack of fair distribution, yes, of wealth, opportunities, etc., etc. And resources, yes. And resources, absolutely. I mean, that's, of course, that's another big problem. But I want just to highlight once again, we do not have a national movement, and that is very important. Alexei Navalny, Russia's probably the most well-known, powerful prominent opposition politician is going back to Moscow. To be honest, I didn't expect him to go back that soon. He has just been recovering. He said in his blog post just a few days ago that he felt that he has has recovered enough. He felt healthy enough to continue his political quest. And he bought a, a ticket for a flight from Berlin to Moscow a few days ago. And he's going back. By the time this conversation is public, he will have been Uh, in Moscow already. He is planning to go back that past Sunday. Navalny's movement is actually a national movement. He's been successful in building a nationwide movement, and that may be a core or a promise of some kind of a national movement. What do you think? I think that, first of all, you are talking not about a national movement. You are talking about a network of his offices across Russia. This is true. So in terms of his infrastructure, his network is the most powerful, most efficient in Russia. So he actually does not have any competitors and he is the leading figure of the Russian opposition. I think nobody would dare to argue <laughs> this. So uh, yes, this episode is going to be published next week. So hopefully Alexei Navalny by that time will be in Russia. We don't know what the response of the authorities might be, but we perfectly understand that Navalny is perceived as the main threat to Vladimir Putin. I mean, Vladimir Putin perceives Navalny as his main opponent. And there's no doubt about that, that they're going to 
put uh, pressure on him. I don't know whether they're going to arrest him directly at the airport or they're going to wait. So, but I mean that the probability that he will be sent to prison is extremely high. But he's a different person right now. He left Russia. He was transported to Germany. He Actually, he didn't leave Russia on his own. He was transported to Germany for medical treatment five months ago. So he was an influential figure. Now Navalny is a recognized politician around the world. And Navalny is a recognized politician in Russia. When Navalny was transported to Germany, 50%, around 50%, or before that, 50% of Russians knew something about Alexei Navalny. Now I think it's very near to 100%. His audience has become larger than it used to be before his attempted poisoning. And the challenge for him is that he has to... So, like, lots of people are following him right now. Many more than it used to be. So this figure is way higher than it used to be. So the problem for him is to develop an agenda to address those concerns that exist in our societies and in these new groups that are now following Navalny. Navalny is the author and the producer, as it were, of a number of very prominent big-time investigations about Russia's ruling politicians and well-known figures in Russia, mostly about their corrupt behavior, the kind of properties they own, with the kinds of income they officially have they wouldn't be able to own. Navalny is also well-known because of an investigation into his own attempted murder, attempted poisoning, which he was able to investigate. He's extremely popular on YouTube. But um, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, calls him a blogger to denigrate him, to lower his status, essentially to indicate that this guy is just uh, an internet uh, sensation, a phenomenon, a person who's saying things, but those things do not necessarily mean anything. Do you think that uh, Alexei Navalny has been successful in becoming a trusted voice, a voice that uh, enjoys credibility rather than cessationalism? It's a very good point you've just made. It's a big challenge, not only for Alexei Navalny, but for any politician to win trust of those people who know about you, of those people who follow you. I mean, I'm not talking about those people who support because they trust Alexei Navalny if they support them. So it was a very interesting thing. He managed to solve his case completely. To me, it was absolutely clear and convincing. So the arguments were really clear and I had no questions to this investigation. So the question is that the central investigation committee hasn't yet opened a criminal investigation into Alexei Navalny's attempted poisoning. And now we can't expect they will do it under the current political leadership. So the problem, I mean, it's not so specific to Russia, it's specific for many post-Soviet countries. So we have a global problem. People do not trust anybody. That's very important for Alexei. That's an important and very complicated goal to win trust. I don't know how he's going to do this, but I think that is absolutely crucial. And just to, as an example to illustrate my point, Russians do not have trust in their state. 
So they don't trust their own state. They don't trust any institutions. And it's funny that they don't trust that the newly developed vaccine Sputnik is effective. <laughs> I personally think it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Russians are very reluctant to have it. So it's available, it's free of charge. But I mean, this level of distrust is so high that they even don't want to, to try Sputnik. And we now see lots of prominent people trying to convince others <laughs> to do that. Yeah, that's a very important point, obviously. And, and indeed, It's not just Russia. It's really international. Mistrust of uh, politics, mistrust of motives. People do think, in many countries, not just in Russia, people do think that politicians, public figures are pursuing their personal gain, their personal motives to get attention, to become rich. Yes, these are so-called partly conspiracy theories. People are really obsessed with all these conspiracy theories. So there is a, it's not that easy. And uh, with Alexei, it has been really a long, long-running story. He has been trying to persuade a lot of people in Russia, and actually not just in Russia, beyond, that he is real, that he is really a politician who has an agenda of his own, that he is uh, nobody's tool. I mean, for a long time, a lot of people would uh, say that he is uh, some sort of Kremlin secret agent because they would let him continue against the background of what he's been doing. The Kremlin still would let him go, and um, that would sort of be a, an indication of his being uh, the Kremlin's tool. And now, I think after the poisoning, after this whole story that unfolded since August, we probably can safely put that aside. I mean, he clearly is not the Kremlin's tool. But sort of the next issue is his investigations. And again, he publishes a story about FSB being behind him. He publishes stories about Russia's uh, ruling group wealth, And people say, again, where does he get it? And um, the Kremlin, President Putin personally, have um, maintained that the kind of information Navalny is presenting is uh, a leak. Is uh, He gets all that from the Western special agencies, from the likes of CIA, MI6, or whatever it is. And uh, unfortunately, this seems to be working. What do you think? Can you possibly overcome this sort of conspiratorial thinking that is stirred by Russia's president himself. It's important that all Russian national TV stations are under state's control. So we cannot possibly expect that they're going to educate their citizens or to have a real political debate on our television stations. So I mean people watch television and they are fed all these conspiracy theories. It's difficult to effectively respond to this. So there is only YouTube. And of course, once again, it's very different from television. People can choose what they watch. And the problem is that people say, okay, he's saying right things, but he hasn't yet done anything if we are talking about Navalny. So how can I trust him if I cannot see him in action? That's a problem. And they do everything to prevent new politicians, new opposition figures from entering real politics from being elected to Russian legislative bodies, to be represented in the Russian executive branch, etc., etc. In Russia, there is a big problem that a lot of people are not represented in legislative bodies, in executive bodies, etc., etc. So you cannot prove 
that you are a good person. You cannot prove that you are a trustworthy person because you are not allowed to show what you can do as an elected official. They prevent you from becoming a politician, but then they say that, yeah, you are not a politician. You are not effective. You are not efficient. For example, there is a good story, just to make it clear. There was a mayor of uh, the city of Yakutsk. She was elected in 2018. She was not a member of uh, the United Russia, so the ruling party. She managed to get elected and she was a very good mayor. All people loved her so much that she had no choice but to resign because the Kremlin didn't like her and, of course, they didn't like the fact how popular she was. And you see that there was a lot of trust because she was elected. She did some good things. She cared about her region. She cared about those people who live in this region. And uh, that's how you can easily get trust. But of course, they don't want to let Navalny do the same thing. Yeah, I understand. That's a good example. We're talking about uh, Sardana Avksentiva, who was until very recently the mayor of the city of Yakutsk, the capital city of Siberia, in the Siberia region of um, Yakutia. And uh, that was actually was uh, my next question, by the way. I was uh, thinking to conclude by discussing this choice that you probably had at some point in your career, choosing between politics and some public activity, journalism or research. At a certain point, apparently, you've decided not to go into politics. Some years ago, after your father's murder, after you had uh, decided to leave Russia for a while to found your organization, Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom. So how did you decide? What was your thinking when you decided not to pursue politics at the time? And do you sort of leave it for yourself as a possible prospect uh, for the future. I decided not to be a politician, not in 2015, but in 2005. I had some experience with politics. In 2005, we were still a fluid democracy, and I took part in the elections. I ran for the Moscow City Council in a single constituency, and I was 21 years old. I was very much inspired by Margaret Thatcher, who first took part in the elections uh, when she was 21. And that was my strongest argument in favor of my decision to become a politician at such a young age. <laughs> well, I lost, obviously. <laughs> but I got 10% of the votes. And I saw the whole situation from inside. And I realized that it wouldn't be possible for me to become an elected official under Putin. And that's why I was very, I would say, pragmatic. I wanted to achieve something in my life. And I understood perfectly well back then that it would be impossible for me to achieve anything in politics. And that's why I switched to finance and to financial markets. I worked in an asset management firm and then I joined RBC. Back then it was something like Bloomberg. So it was a channel focused on business news and financial markets. In 2015, I didn't change my mind. I understood that I couldn't achieve anything. Of course, I can achieve some level of popularity. Probably I would have had more followers on Instagram, Facebook or YouTube or whatsoever. But I think that politics is interesting when you can bring change. Now we are not talking about classic politics. We are talking 
about fighting the current political system. That's what we are talking about when we speak about Russian opposition politicians. They put every effort into trying to confront the Russian political system, trying to bring change to Russia, trying to return Russia on the democratic track. So it's what they do, and they have a lot of respect, and I admire them a lot. That's why I chose a different path. I'm a journalist and a social activist, so I'm the co-founder of the Borstemter Foundation. But I might be perceived uh, by the Kremlin as a potential political actor. And I think they perceive me to some extent as a political actor. Because for them, journalists, social activists, like politicians, it's all the same. These people are political actors because they do not support the current political regime and they are outspoken. Yeah, it's a hard life. But um, tell me a little bit about your foundation. And um, are you happy with what you've been doing As a foundation, as your organization, what do you see as your core purpose, interest in uh, pursuing this sort of activity? I am very passionate about the foundation. Well, first of all, we are a very small organization in financial terms. And I want the Borsamta Foundation to grow, to become not a startup, but a bigger organization. So I think that we have everything for that, and, but it's really difficult to find uh, financial support core support, yes, in order to grow their organization. We have several goals. So we are now very much focused on educational programs. We have uh, the annual Borsnemts of School of Journalism and Cultural Studies. We are going to have it uh, for the fourth time in 2021. It's a three-week Russian language program for young journalists, bloggers, media activists from Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, post-Soviet countries, and Europe and the US. So they're bringing these people together. We are training them on quality journalism, on digital things, on media management, a lot of different things, on filmmaking, on video editing. And we try to introduce them to different editorials so they can find jobs afterwards. This is not just a school, it's a community. We are building a community, a network of journalists in Russia and other countries. And second, so we are going to have I hope in autumn we are going to have a workshop which is called the Health Policy Reform. It's a workshop of Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. So it's going to be taught by Professor Francis Fukuyama and another faculty member. It's a very good program for young Russian leaders. I think we could offer more and more. We are, uh, we are going to offer some educational trips for young Russian leaders on one of our programs. So it's education. And the second is, of course, community building and support supporting people. It's very, very difficult in Russia. And I see lots of examples like that. If you're politically active, if you're outspoken on your social media platforms, in many times, it's very difficult for you to find a job. And people really experience, so there is, of course, an economic crisis, but people really experience financial hardships because of their political positions. I think that we have to support these people, and we have to maintain this network of progressively-minded young people. And finally, I think that the good thing about the Borstemter Foundation is that its founders have no personal political interests. 
And this is important because we can talk to different groups. We are not competing within these groups. Oh yeah, you are not competing for office. Nobody is competing for office if you are not the member of the United Russia. There are other sorts of competition. So there are different still. So we have fewer position leaders, but they still there are different groups and they are competing with each other. We are not competing. And uh, that's why it helps us bring together these people. We are very unbiased in this sense. And it's important, and that's why we have the Borsimso Forum, so we can invite Alexei Navalny, we can invite Francis Fukuyama, we can invite Khodorkovsky, etc., etc., etc. So I think that it's uh, like, it's a community-building organization, and it is very in the line with my father's political legacy, because he saw this community-building as his main task. He tried to bring together different leaders, to discuss things, to act together. Okay, and on this promising note, it's a good time to conclude. Jean um, Nemtsova, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For sharing your thoughts and ideas for the listeners of uh, the Russia File podcast. Thank you so much, and um, stay tuned. We'll be back. Thank you. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.